Shaking a Nickel Bush by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1962, Chapter 4, Horse Falls. Father, thank you um, for the beautiful day we had here in Alabama, and I thank you that uh, we were able to get work done uh, both inside and outside, and as we uh, think about the rain and the storms that are coming, Father, uh, guard and keep every family member, wherever they are, in the cold, uh, in the warmth, in the clear skies, and in the stormy skies. Lord, you uh, bring all things about on this earth um, and sustain it all, and you nourish the ground to bear fruit. We give you thanks. Thank you for the food, for the animals, for all that's around us. In Jesus' name, amen. I found a cracking good place to watch from, a tangled bunch of creosote bush right at the edge of the strip. But I had to wait more than an hour before I saw Ted riding out at the head of a little band. There were 18 or 20 riders in it, about half Indians and half cowboys. All the Indians were stripped down to breech clouts and moccasins and with a feather or two stuck in their long hair. And all the cowboys were dressed up in Hollywood style. But it was easy enough to pick out the ones that were going to take the falls. Two Indians and three cowboys. They were mounted on skinny old crow baits, while all the others were on real good-looking ponies. My hiding place was more than 200 yards from the tripping reels, so I couldn't hear anything that was being said, and I couldn't see too clearly. But I could see well enough to be pretty sure that Ted was planning to take some of the fight out of the ugliest among the Wyoming riders. The three biggest ones were rigged out as cowboys, and the two shortest were stripped down and painted like Indians. As others came out from the village afoot and ranged along behind the cameras, Ted got his riders together in front of the trip reels. From the way they were circled around, with the fall riders in the middle, I knew he must be telling each one just what he was supposed to do. But all the way through it, the Wyoming boys kept yipping and howling like coyotes. Ted wasn't the only one who was telling people what to do, and there were plenty of them to be told. Cameramen, stretchermen, a doctor and a veterinary, a couple of sharpshooters, and about 40 11 helpers and assistants. Running around among them were the directors and bosses in their drugstore cowboy outfits, every one of them carrying a megaphone and yelling orders. And nobody was paying any more attention than the Wyoming boys seemed to be paying to Ted. It must have been 15 or 20 minutes before Ted lined his riders up in front of the reels, and I saw men bring the wires out and fasten them to the quarter, uh, fasten them to the fall ponies' shoe rings. For as much as a full minute, there wasn't a sound. Then somebody with a megaphone shouted, One, two, three, roll! In the scramble away from the start, it was pretty hard to see anything clearly. But as the Indians came pounding toward me, with the cowboys a few lengths behind them, I did see one thing for sure. Every pony ridden by a real Indian or a Hollywood cowboy was trained right down to a fine edge. And those ponies, ponies knew their business and that course as well as any man on the lot. With its jerk rope hanging loose over its neck and with its rider half turned to shoot back, every, Indian pony's thread, every Indian's pony threaded a clean course through that gauntlet of ocotillo, staghorn, brush, and cactus. The two who were carrying riders that were going to unload knew exactly where and when. I think they gave the riders the cue because both of them swerved aside the instant before the Indian threw his arms above his head, giving them plenty of room and clear ground when he slithered down the neck and rolled clear. The Hollywood Cowboys horses knew their business just as well, and I could see that they were running in formation like a drill team. 
But the fall horses were scared out of their wits by all the screeching and shooting. They came tearing straight on through what, whatever happened to be in their way, like stampeding cattle in a night thunder and lightning storm. One of them that was carrying a make-believe Indian must have been blind or had his eyes shut. He veered wide and ran so close under the branches of a staghorn tree that a festoon with a million prickers on it caught his half-turned rider in the back of the neck. That boy didn't have to wait for his pony to be tripped. He went flying as if he'd been caught up in a cyclone. I didn't see him land, but he was still on the ground, whirling around like a cat in a fit when the show was over. The whole run lasted barely ten seconds, and it was an hour before Ted brought the next bunch of fall riders out. But it took me the whole hour to sort out and remember all that I'd seen in those few seconds. It must have be, it must be that a fellow sees a lot more than he can handle when things are happening so fast. And the only way he can remember all of them is if he has plenty of time to sort them out right after they've happened. At first, I was too excited and scared to think. I wanted to jump up and run to help the boys who were hurt. But everybody else was running, so I figured I'd better stay where I was until the excitement was over. After they'd carried the boys back to the village, and after I'd had time to reason out that they wouldn't have been so badly hurt if they hadn't been trying to show off, I found that I could remember almost everything that had happened during the run. And in my mind, I could see it all over again, almost as if it had been done in slow motion. Although I didn't know it at the time, I doubtlessly kept my eyes fixed on the fall riders all the way through the run, for it was they and not the real Indians and extras I could see again as I lay there in the brush with my eyes shut. The first one to go down had been the one whose pony ran him into the staghorn chala. The second was the other boy who was playing Indian because the Indians passed the cameras ahead of the cowboys. I think that boy was trying so hard to hit one of the Hollywood cowboys with an arrow that he'd forgotten his pony was going to be tripped. He was riding bareback, had his legs clamped tight, and was turned more than halfway around when the pony somersaulted. He probably clamped tighter when he felt the pony going, for he didn't fly free but came down as though he'd been stuck in a saddle. He tried to straighten around on the way down, then stuck out his arms to push the ground away as he saw it coming toward him. Of course, he broke them both, and a leg that was caught under the dead pony. Their first cowboy rider would have been alright if either he or his pony had been watching where they were going. He fell free and loose, and landed rolling on one shoulder. But he came down in a patch of prickly pears that was knee-high and as big as a tabletop. The next boy froze to his musket, landed with it under him, and broke a wrist, a collarbone, and five ribs. Why the last raider, fall rider wasn't killed, I'll never know. He was the biggest man in the Wyoming bunch. The ugliest when he was drunk, and he tried to show off the most. He caught my eye from the moment he left the starting line. And Ted told me afterwards that he did everything, every single thing he told him not to do. He was supposed to have ridden at the tail end and to have been the first cowboy tripped down, but he was never at the end. He left the line shrieking like a wild cat in a trap and raking his pony from shoulder to flank with the spurs. I have an idea he was yellow and thought he'd throw the old pony into a crow-hopping buck so he'd never get as far as the cameras. But it didn't work that way. That pony didn't buck a jump. And by the way he ran, he must have been at least half thoroughbred. Before he got opposite me, he was leading the cowboy band, and he was bearing straight down on an Indian that had just unloaded. If it hadn't been for that, they wouldn't have risked tripping him with the others all behind. But they didn't have any choice. When the tripper man dropped the hook, he happened to catch that big cow hand spurring back on the flank, and with his feet 
uh, driven home tight into the stirrups. With his legs kicked back when the pony somersaulted, he went out of the saddle like a turtle flung by the tail. Both feet stuck fast in the stirrups, and he came down flat on his belly as though he'd been dropped from a cloud. Some mighty fast thinking by both men and horses was all that saved that big cowhand from being pounded to a pulp. The pony he was riding was badly hurt, but not killed in the fall. It landed with his rump between the rider's spread-eagled legs, its heels kicking like the beaters in a thrashing machine. When the pony somersaulted, there, were, there was barely two lengths between him and the racing cowponies. But in the fraction of a second before they reached him, a sharpshooter had broken his back with a 30-30 slug. Like a herd of frightened deer going over a fence, the trained ponies sailed over and left the rider untouched. I never heard how many bones the rider had broken in that fall, but he was still unconscious at noon, and they'd taken him to Wickenburg before supper time. I've seen some pretty good riflemen, but never one who made as quick and dead sure a shot in an emergency as that sharpshooter's. As I lay waiting for the next run to be started, it made me feel a lot safer just to have a man like that on the lot. For one of the biggest dangers in horse falls is that the rider may become caught in some part of the gear and be kicked to death by his injured horse. When Ted came riding out with me, no, when Ted came riding out with the next bunch, I noticed right away that all the Indians were real ones. But there were a few more Hollywood cowboys, and four fall men were mounted on old crowbaits. I couldn't be sure, but it looked to me as if only two of them were Wyoming boys, and they were evidently pretty well sobered up because they weren't doing any yipping and yelling. From the motions Ted was going through, I knew he was telling them what they should do and what they shouldn't do in trying to protect themselves in both the ride and the fall. After Ted had talked to the fall boys for 10 or 15 minutes, he took the musket from one of them and then traded mounts with him. He was barely up on the pony, fall pony when everyone along the course began yelling, shouting, shooting off guns, and making all the noise they could. Frightened by all the noise, the pony bolted straight away, but he hadn't taken three steps before he swerved to the right and skirted the edge of an open, gravelly patch of ground. At the same time, same time, Ted threw the musket to his shoulder, hugged his chin against the stock as though he were taking careful aim, and fired. The direction he was holding the musket kept his head turned quartering away from the way the pony was running. But the pony came pounding up the course toward me, weaving in and out to keep clear ground at his left during nearly every step of the way. Ted kept on shooting with his chin hugged tight against the stock and his head turned quartering away. At first, I thought Ted must be riding a well-trained pony, but as he came closer, I could see that he was swerving it this way and that with his weight and the pressure of his knees. And he wasn't siding down the barrel of the musket. Only his head was turned. His eye was watching the ground ten feet in front of the pony's hooves. Just as he passed the bushes where I was hiding, he threw his arms high, let the musket fall behind him, and dived down the far side of the pony's neck. He didn't unload, but straightened up after a few strides, turned the pony, and rode back to pick up the musket. He didn't look toward my brush bush, but as he stepped down, he asked, Did you take note of that? Nice going, I said without moving. He still didn't look my way, but as he swung back into the saddle, he told me, Stay where you're at, kid, and keep your eyes peeled. When Ted lined up his fall riders for that run, I noticed that he left the two middle trip lines open. He put the two Wyoming boys way over to the right and the other two far out to the left. Then he put the last riders among the Hollywood bunch about two or three lengths in front of them. With that much open space between themselves and the riders ahead, the fall boys had, pretty, had plenty of chance to watch where they were riding and to do it the way Ted had showed them. 
and spread out the way they were, every one of them could have made his fall with no horse behind him or within 20 feet. They didn't do it. The instant the director yelled, Roll! All four of them swerved their ponies toward the center of the strip and spurred as if they were trying to outrun a cyclone. Not one of them was aiming his musket at the Indians, but had it swung up as if it were an axe handle. The ponies of the two riders, who had started from the inside positions, came together, quartering shoulder to shoulder, and went down with their riders under them in a tangle of arms, legs, kicking heels, and tangled, twanging wire. The trip man dropped his hook just as the second Wyoming boy was swinging his musket at the head of a New Mexico rider. Off balance, he had no chance to save himself, spun over with his horse, and came down with it sprawled on top of him. The New Mexico boy tried to make a decent ride of it as soon as he was left alone. By the time he came into camera range, he had his musket aimed at the Indians, was handling his pony in good shape, and made his fall within five feet of my bush. His horse was tripped just as it reached out with a lead forefoot, so it went over in a lightning-fast somersault, straight forward. The boy barely had time to heave his musket back over his head and was shot from the saddle almost as if he'd been an arrow leaving a bow. But the horse went over so fast that the rider was only three or four feet from the ground when he flew, and he still had his arms and his head thrown back from getting rid of the musket. Without trying to twist or turn, the rider streaked through the air for about eight or ten feet, hit the ground sliding, and skidded another five or six. If he lit on sod or any sort of smooth ground, he wouldn't have been hurt any more than a boy taking a belly slider a belly buster slide on a sled, but he didn't land on sod. He came down right in the middle of a gravel patch, and before he'd skidded to a stop, the pebbles had ripped his closed ribbons and scraped most of the hair off his chest. At first, to me, it seemed to me that the best thing I could do was to stay where I was till noon, then eat as much as my belly would hold, all on my last meal ticket, and head back to town before I got killed in one of those crazy rides. Then, after the mess had been cleaned up and I was waiting for Ted to bring out the last bunch of riders for the forenoon, I began thinking about the New Mexico riders' fall, and I got an idea. The first thought that had gone through my head when I'd seen him sailing along, just a couple of feet above the ground, was that he looked like a boy who had made his run and was flopping down onto his bed. And sliding made me think of a hill, and that made me think about the new set Ted had shown me on the side of the mesa. It's funny how one thing will lead to another when a fellow is all alone and in no hurry, and thinking sort of loose-jointedly. The next thing I found myself thinking about was that I'd seen skiers in New England jump nearly the whole length of hills that were fully as steep and a lot longer than the one on the edge of the mesa. Of course, they'd had snow to land on, but some of those jumpers had been as much as 60 feet above the hillside on the way down, and it wasn't the softness of the snow that had kept it, them from being hurt when they landed. It had been because this hillside was falling away nearly as fast as they were and because they kept right on sliding downward after they'd landed. It seemed to me that it might work about the same way if, I, if a fellow took a horse fall down a steep hill like that. It wouldn't do any good to somersault in the air and try to land on your feet because you wouldn't slide but would topple over like a felled tree. That wouldn't happen if you went belly bump the way the New Mexico rider had, but the gravel on the new set was coarser and sharper than on the patch of ground in front of my bush. I'd have given up any idea of trying a belly bump fall on the new set if I hadn't happened to remember the time one of our new neighbor's boys nearly got killed when he was hauling gravel for a new road. He was a smart aleck kid, about 10 years old, and had been amusing himself by throwing pebbles at the, old ho at the horses while they were loading wagons in an old pit that had been dug in deep into a hillside. We were about ready to wring his neck before his father told him to go home, but he didn't go. 
Instead, he climbed the hill and began tossing pebbles down at us from the edge of the pit. Suddenly, I heard a screech and looked up to see the boy tumbling down the face of the gravel bank. He skidded and slid about half the distance and started a slide that buried him four feet deep at the bottom. And we got him dug out just before he smothered to death. That gravel was really rough, and we expected to find the kid torn to shreds. But there wasn't a scratch on him, so we figured the stones had rolled under him like ball bearings. I knew the stones on the side of the mesa wouldn't roll that easily because the grade wasn't steep enough and the ground underneath was too rough and hard. But if they'd roll at all, I thought I had an idea that would make me a lot of money. I didn't want to see the falls of the last forenoon run, but crawled out of my bush and slipped away to the edge of the mesa, keeping out of sight as much as I could. When I was sure I was alone, I walked, I walked along the rim till I found a big open patch of gravel down over the edge. With no boulders or cactus on it, I took a run, jumped off over the edge, and landed like a baseball player stealing a second base. I landed pretty hard on my hip, but the stones rolled under me, and I'd only torn my jeans a little when I skidded to a stop. Next, I tried diving off head first, as if I'd had a sled to come down on, but I kept my head well back and my arms up. That didn't work too well, because I stuck my chest out too far, didn't have it full of enough of air. When I lit on it, I knocked the wind out of myself, but I didn't skid very far, and I didn't get scraped too badly on the gravel. Before I could try another fall, I had to sit there a few minutes to get my breath back, and it gave me a chance to do a little more thinking. I hadn't seen Lonnie land when he dived off the freight train, but he told me that if you landed rolling, you wouldn't get hurt. So I decided I'd make it. I'd try it in making a fall. That time, I took a fast run to the edge, dived high, and twisted myself crosswise of the hill so I'd land rolling. I did. And I'd have rolled clear to the bottom of the hill if I hadn't wound up in a tangle of greasewood bushes. But it hadn't knocked the wind out of me when I landed, and I'd only got a few scratches from the gravel as I rolled. On the next try, I didn't turn my body so far while I was in the air, but twisted a shoulder down so I'd land on the back of it and roll diagonally. It worked all right. And after I'd tried it a few more times, I found that I could steer myself pretty well in the air so as to land and roll about where and how I wanted to. Then I brushed myself off a little and went in for lunch. I hadn't realized that I spent much time in practicing, but the last run of the forenoon had been finished for an hour before I got back to the lot. A stretcher man told me it was the wildest ride he'd ever seen. All four of the fall riders were in the hospital tent with broken arms or legs, and the rest of group three was in the checkout tent. No, it was in the chuck tent. <laughs> I cleaned myself up as well as I could before I went over, but when I'd passed the serving counter, Ted motioned for me to come and sit with him. Where the devil you been, and what you been up to, he asked as I sat down opposite him. Practicing on the edge of the mesa, I told him. Who do I make a deal with for taking falls on the new set? Ted told me I'd have to make my deal with the production manager, and they'd take me to him as soon as I'd finished my lunch. But it was more than half an hour before we left the table. First, he made me tell him about, tell him about my practicing, just how I'd done it, and what I'd learned from it. Then he told me about the trouble he'd been having with our group that forenoon. He said it was divided into two war parties, the Wyoming boys against everybody else, and the man might as well waste his time in trying to talk sense to a pack of fighting coyotes. The boys didn't dare get into any more fistfights because there were too many armed guards around and they'd get kicked off the lot. So they'd turned the fall riding into a crazy game of Stump the Leader. That was why he wanted to get started on the new set right away. He said that the way things were going, half the boys would bust themselves up before supper time anyway, and they might as well do it on a set where the company could shoot some premium film. The production man knew as well as we did that the other boys were steamed up enough to tackle the new set, and that they wouldn't hold out for big pay to make the falls. 
even with Ted's telling him that I'd be worth more, the best deal I could make with the man was for $25 a fall. Even at that, it didn't work out too badly. Ted was right in his guess that half the boys would bust themselves up before supper time. They did. And then the next day, I was able to raise my price to 35 While we were over at the makeup tent getting ready for my first ride, Ted got an idea that saved me a lot of grief and probably saved me or probably made me a lot of money. I was so thin that the ward drover couldn't find anything to fit me. He was trying to make an old jacket smaller when Ted winked at me and hollered, Wait a minute there! You can't go putting no pins in a fall rider's duds and I ain't going to have no rider out there looking like a dressed up skeleton. Pad this kid up so as he can fill man-sized clothes. He slapped me on the back of the shoulders hard enough to rattle my teeth and again on the chest. Get it up high on him here and thick, he told the man, so as he'll look like a, a man instead of a scarecrow and pat out the points of them skinny shoulders. When we went out of there, I looked like a fat bull with a starved <laughs> <laughs> with a starved calf's head on him, but those pads saved me an awful lot of beating when I landed from a bad fall. Even at that, I got some pretty rough bumps because a horse was seldom tripped where I could aim myself at a decent spot to land on. And even though the biggest staghorn collar and yucca had been dug up and reset, they knocked the wind out of me when I hit them on the fly. I made two falls that first afternoon, four on each of the next two days and three on the fourth day. At the end of that last day, I didn't have a broken bone anywhere, but my face and hands looked like raw hamburger. Every joint in me creaked as if it were rusty, and there was hardly a spot on my legs, arms, or body that wasn't black and blue. The next morning, I was stiff and sore, so I couldn't bend over to pull on my britches. All the way through, Ted had looked out for me as carefully as if I'd been his own son. As long as the Wyoming boys lasted, he never let one of them ride near me, but always put them on the other side of the strip. He saw to it that there was never a rider behind me and always let me know about where I could expect my fall so that I'd be as ready for it as possible. Then, at the end of every run, I collected my pay and gave it to him to keep for me. There was $435 by the end of that fourth day, more than I could have made as a cowhand in a whole year. I was sure that with a day or two of rest, I'd be able to ride some more falls, but Ted said there was no sense in crowding my luck and that stiffened up as I was, I'd probably break my neck the next time out. He sat on my cot and visited so long that he missed his breakfast, just talking about old friends we'd known in Colorado and about going back as soon as spring came. Then he held the first run of the morning over for half an hour so he could see me off when I took the fliver back to Wickenburg. When we shook hands, he said, Keep your nose clean, kid, and don't flash that roll of long green. There's them around that would knock a man off for that much dough. Come 4th of July, I'll see you at the Littleton Roundup. I'll be there, I told him, and then the fliver jounced away. It was because of my telling Ted that I'd be at the Littleton Roundup that I was lying flat in the ditch in the St. Joseph Freight Yards the night before the 4th. Man, that's pretty amazing how he rode and crashed and rode and crashed and did it uh, learning the whole way. Love you guys.